Hello, I'm Ben Eshmade and welcome to another edition of the Academy podcast. In this episode, we bring together two generations of virtuoso harpsichordists, Mahan Esfahani and John Constable, for a conversation in which they share stories, insight and maybe answer the question why they both fell in love with this 17th century instrument. The harpsichord has has just changed so much absolutely. even in the you know just the course of either of our careers right yeah, i mean absolutely completely so heck i mean to be able to play with the academy of saint martin in the fields is a not only because of of sir neville but of course he's a big part of that i mean i can't believe this is actually happening iranian american harpsichordist mahan esfahani has made it his life's mission to rehabilitate the harpsichord in the mainstream of concert instruments and alongside a busy international performance schedule can be heard championing the instrument and classical music as a whole on bbc radio 3. john constable was principal pianist of the london symphonietta from its formation in 1968 until 2017 and has been principal harpsichordist of the academy of st martin in the fields since 1984. In July 2019, Mahan Esfahani joins the Academy for two concerts in Germany, performing Bach's Harpsichord Concerto No. 1 in D minor and the Haydn Concerto for Violin and Harpsichord in F major. John Constable will also perform with the orchestra during the tour in works by both CPE and J.S. Bach. So, to an overcast Friday afternoon in London, where these two exceptional musicians are gathered, I started by asking if Mahan first saw a harpsichord being played at an academy concert and whether John was the one playing it. I, I remember it was not John playing because I knew John's name already from cassettes and things that I had of Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. And I knew John's name, of course, from a recording of the Faya Concerto with Simon Rattle yeah, and Decca. Yeah, yeah. So had, had, it, had it been John, I would have, I think I would have, it would have piqued my interest. But I was, yeah, I think I was 12, 12, 13. Oh. My father said, well, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields is coming to town with Iona Brown. And I had heard them on the radio because back then American radio cared to actually play things. And they were doing Brandenburg Five. I, have, I don't remember who it was. I, can, I should find out. But at the end of the concert, I thought, well, I think that's what I would like to spend my time dealing with. I thought this is, this is well worth one's time. And the path for you, John, was a little bit more complex, I presume. Well, I mean, I don't think I even knew what a harpsichord was. I mean, I've always wanted to be a pianist and I wanted to be an accompanist. I started my life at um, Covent Garden on music staff there. I met singers and I've always done that sort of thing. But when I was at the Academy, uh, the Royal Academy of Music, I had a harmony teacher who was Paul Steinitz, who conducted a lot of Bach, and he taught me to, to play from finger basses and things like that, and he taught me how to improvise. And then I did sort of some of his Bach cantatas for about 15 years, but that was a chamber organ. Then at Covent Garden, I did some of their operas, Mozart operas, things on harpsichord then. Then I got into playing with, with the English Chamber Orchestra, and, and that's what, but I never had an ambition. I wouldn't want to be a Baroque soloist. I think there's something completely different, and it feels the whole instrument is different. So I'm a pianist who plays the harpsichord. Yeah, I think, John, I think, John, you're being too modest. I would say you are a harpsichordist. But, you know, the harpsichord has, has just changed so much. Absolutely. Even in the, you know, just the course of either of our careers, right? Yes, I mean, absolutely, completely. So. Yes, when I first started, uh, there, was, there were no 
But what harpsichords are around, they were all the, the English made Robert Goebel with, um, with pedals that you can change. The, and the, the so pieces, these are modern harpsichords, there's a big difference. It's, a modern, it's not yeah. a Baroque reproduction. Because I joined the London Symphonietta, which did contemporary music, and because I also played harpsichord continuous things, oh, I can play the harpsichord. So that's, I got given harpsichord concertos. And I think there are many people around then People who did play Baroque clever Pinnock, they never played Elliot Carter double concerto, which is ferociously hard. Right. But also, I think they're written more for a piano sort of keyboard. And I think to play something like that, apart from the fact that you couldn't, you have to change pedals and go right up from 16 foot bottom to the highest note possible without, just with pedals That's right. in, yeah. in the Elliot Carter. So here's the thing, I mean, like the harpsichord, the interruption for the harpsichord is the 19th century, right? So we see it as an instrument that died, but actually you could say maybe it kind of just went to sleep for about 100, 120 years. When harpsichords started to be copied and they were revived, you have to understand that this was not part of an early music revival. No. Harpsichords were revived because people recognized that it had certain properties pertaining to that music that were important and that they were properties that contributed to people understanding the music better. But when the harpsichord was revived, people didn't know how to build them. So they kind of copied what they saw on instruments and they kind of used piano technology. They added pedals so you could change registers quickly, kind of like on an organ. And they, they took a line, which I think is not a, it's not a stupid line at all, which is, hey, let's, let's continue where the old builders left it which is a perfectly reasonable perspective. And so over the 20th century, the harpsichord went from that to people really copying period instruments and even using, you know, period string gauges, period string materials, period the sizes of the keys, things like that. And I mean, there's a whole conversation about authenticity to be had there, mm -hmm. but what would have been called a harpsichord 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, this has changed so rapidly. Um, a harpsichord or, or a version of a harpsichord isn't the kind of instrument you can buy in a music shop. Well, when I was 16, my father bought a kit. So we put oh, a kit together. Yes, cool kits, yes. You know, it was very fashionable at one time, right? To yes, put lots I of remember, stuff together yes. in kits. I never had one, but I, yes, I remember that. And it was a reasonable musical instrument. It was a single manual harpsichord. And then later I, had a, I put together another kit, which is an excellent instrument, which is still my instrument at home today. It's what I used to practice. I had it rebuilt later by a professional builder. And that's a double um, manual. Isn't that's it? a double yeah. manual, yeah. Could you explain the idea of a kit? In what form did it come? I mean, what were the different components? Well, as the name would suggest, it's basically a bunch of parts from a builder's workshop with a booklet of instructions. Well, how to put it together, yeah. well, not how to play it, but how to put it yeah, together. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting. I mean, for, for both of you, that the idea of how much you know the the technical side of the instrument. Do you need to know perhaps more about the harpsichord to get the sound or to get the performance no, that you not, want? it's not so much the sound. It's a different keyboard, particularly a Baroque one, because they're smaller, it's a different thing. But to practice something like the Elliot Carter, you've got to practice on the sort of instrument you could play. And I was lucky when I started. A, there weren't a Baroque reproduction once about. It was all 
these Robert Goebel instruments, and there was somebody called Malcolm Russell who had about four of them, who I got to know. He provided them all. English Chamber Orchestra, the Academy here, and I could go to his house and practice. So I was learning it at home on the piano, and then go and learn it with the plays on the harpsichord. So I always had a chance to practice. But now that's harder. They, there are not so many about to find them. He's died, and now they're, they're in a warehouse somewhere. You, you'd have to get it out and put it in a hall and, and practice it if you're going to play something like that. We started to talk about this, but as, as someone who's listened to harpsichords in concert and tried to sort of understand it from a, from a, from a distance, um, it seems to me that it's about razor-sharp precision or placing the note. How would you describe the technique or how what would be considered a good harpsichord player? Uh, the idea that an, the approach to the key is not as important on the harpsichord as it is on the piano is a false construct. First of all, you, under, you have to understand that there was a contrarian mis- message built around the harpsichord when it was revived because it had to be different from the piano. The only similarity they have is that they both have keyboards. That's it. Otherwise, these are completely different instruments. One is a string instrument, one is a percussion instrument. So the comparison is, is at best specious anyway to begin with. But when I look at pianists whom I really admire, like Benedetti Michelangeli, Gilles, I think, oh, you know, probably with and a little... Solomon, too. If you heard yeah, Solomon, Solomon. Yeah, yeah, I love his playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't really play the, the piano like the harpsichord because the, the big difference is that you haven't got a loud or soft in the way you, in yeah. the way you play. If you press it harder... It's not louder. So you don't, can't phrase in the same way as you do on the piano. It's a different thing, isn't it? But you, so after you started playing harpsichord, you were still pretty active with piano, right? I've been active all my life of playing for singers, particularly. That was my ambition, was to be an accomplice. I've traveled the world with singers, playing it all the time. Yeah. And I joined the London Sinfonietta as a pianist. So I was there for 50 years, doing wow. contemporary music. On the piano? On the piano. Always the piano, yes. Except occasionally, because nobody else who played Baroque concertos wanted to play Elliot Carter, so I played that for them. And I, I played a little bit outside, but I also had this extra career playing, playing the continuo. And playing in Handel and playing the continuo, again, is something which pianists don't always do. You have to improvise. You don't just play at the chord. You can improvise. Some, some people like you to do a lot. Some people like you to do less. And um, it's a different, different form of music making, which I, I love the improvising side of it. I never thought I would do that when I first started on the piano. You don't. Unless maybe um, Beethoven or Mozart probably were fantastic. You don't, not many pianists do improvising. There's probably a bit more of it now. That yes, absolutely, yeah. Except jazz players, of course. Mahan, um, interesting John talking about his career, which is slightly different to, to yours in the sense of, um, has it been more difficult to be a purely focused harpsichord player? It, it's a good time for you to be around because there's more repertoire or more accessibility to harpsichords. It's difficult when you pose the question that way. <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. No, no. I, get, I totally get what you mean. And it's, and it's a great question, by the way. Because, of course, the other night I played somewhere and some fellow at the pub around from Barbican said to me, so are you only a harpsichordist? And I said, yes, I'm only a harpsichordist. That's not the right Well, he didn't mean, he he didn't mean badly, yeah. you know. Do you play another keyboard? Yeah. But actually, it's funny you should mention about repertoire because the, the repertoire before it went into abeyance in the 19th century is massive. I mean, look... 
harpsichordist, oh, yeah. we're lucky. Yeah. We got Bach, we got yeah. Bird, we got Scarlatti, we got Couperin, we got Handel, we got all of these composers who, who didn't write like two or three pieces, who wrote massive amounts of yeah. music. So there is that. But it is kind of nice, I mean, John, you played with London Sinfonietta. It is kind of nice to see new stuff being written. I'm lucky to have had three prongs to my career. Well, four, if you like, opera and um, accompanying singers and instrumentalists uh, doing contemporary music and playing Baroque. Not many people have the chance to do that, and I feel incredibly fortunate that it, luck or ability, it happened that way, that's all. That's right. And, and it's marvellous to do that, I think. Can I steer us a little bit? And uh, Mahan, um, you're performing the Bach uh, Harpsichord Concerto Number no. 1 and the Haydn Concerto for Violin and Harpsichord with the Academy in July. Can we talk a little bit about those? What's special about these two pieces? Well, the Bach D minor concerto is the... Americans used to use this term, which I think now doesn't really apply because the Cadillac's not really a great car anymore. But you would say it's the Cadillac of harpsichord concertos. I mean... It, it, it's Bach's first concerto, and it is really the most complex and kind of the biggest of the solo concertos, and I, I love the D minor concerto. It's also one of those pieces that made me really want to play the harpsichord. I heard a recording of Carl Richter playing it. Nice. And, it and you know that, that section of the first movement where it's building a bum, 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 bum. And yes. I thought, well, it must be 10 people playing this. It can't be one person. <laughs> yes. And then when I found out it was one person, I said, well, that, this clearly is such a great instrument. So um, the, the Bach D minor is just, it's kind of one of my, I don't want to say war horses, because you always learn something new, you know, when you play it. The Haydn Double Concerto is a piece I've never performed. So I'm really looking forward to performing that. I heard Jean-Pierre Rampal play it. Oh, yeah. Because he made an arrangement of it for flute oh, and harpsichord, yeah. oh. with his harpsichord as Robert Veron Lacroix, and they came to Washington and played it. Oh. And I heard him play it. So I always knew it as a flute and keyboard piece. But John, you, you said you've played it a few times. Yes, we played it on, on an academy tour, must be 25 years ago, I suppose, with Kenny Silvestre, who was oh, one of right. our um, artistic directors at yeah. the time. And then I, I played it, I asked for a pedal harpsichord, which I, I, th I thought was better for that piece, because you can very easily do um, soft for it without having to move anything. That's you can right. just put the pedal and add the forefoot to something. That's but I've often wondered, I think I said to you earlier, that um, I just wonder whether it was only published in 1937. It said harpsichord, but it for me, there's a feeling of early piano about it. I don't know, it's a, it, because it's sort of early classical music, but no. it works on both. I've only ever played it on harpsichord. Funny, because um, actually things like those sudden changes and stuff on really late 18th century English instruments, you can do those changes, of course. Mm. What, so, with pedals, you mean? Yeah, with yes, the, yes, a, yes. where you go, you go from fortissimo to pianissimo with, with a pedal. So, you know, one wonders whether at the very end of the life of the harpsichord, they were doing things yes, to keep up with the market. Both, both instruments were in, in use, weren't yeah. they, then? Because you can't so. expect people didn't just all sell their harpsichords one day and buy pianos. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. People played both. And actually, in countries like France, people continued playing harpsichord up until the revolution. It just, it just was the instrument that people played. I'm sure these in, these concertos were probably played on both instruments. Probably, and like yeah. like continue playing. What did Mozart use? Was it always harpsichord or was it forte piano? 
Or whatever he had. Whatever he had. If yeah. that was in the pit, he just go and play. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to ask both of you the idea of the difference between a continuo player, someone who's sort of within the orchestra or even powering it, uh, and then being a soloist and talking about these pieces or other pieces. Well, of course, when you accompany, you play differently. You just play in a different way. I mean, just because the instrument doesn't have the, the dynamics that you associate with the piano doesn't mean that it doesn't have dynamics. Firstly, you, you know that there are other methods of expression other than simply hitting something hard enough to make it loud. I mean, there are a million other ways of being expressive. So um, I think as a soloist, you kind of have to take charge in a different way, maybe. I don't know. John, I mean, what would you say? But the difference is, um, you, you, if you're playing a concerto, I don't know what you do in the Bach, but some people, you can improvise, and maybe in the Haydn you have cadenzas, you can improvise cadenzas. When you play continue, you're improvising the whole time, and the loud and soft, is, you can add, maybe a double, you, often the four foot after the tune, so you can't use it, but you double, double the eight foot, but you can play with more notes in the chord, which That's make right. it louder or, or less. It's, yeah. it's this different sort of volume thing. But then, again, you're not playing what's in front of you. All that's written is the, um, is the, the bass line. So you're improvising everything. Even if it's a chord, it's wow. improvised. Whereas if you're playing the Bach D minor, you don't have to do much improvising. You don't no have to play the thing. Yeah, yes. that's quite right. But it's a different sort of approach. Of course, if Bach or Handel, just to name two of many people, if they wanted more sound, they added more parts. Yes. So, as a continuo player, if you want more sound, indeed, you do add more yes, parts. Yes. But of course, that's also, it seems in 18th century Germany, they were indifferent to that sort of thing. Because they said that guys like Bach and his uncles and people, that they played in five parts all the time. Which must have been, it must have sounded pretty clunky. Yes, I would and think. also slightly boring if you just had to play chords. <laughs> yeah, they're just constantly like, playing in five parts. I mean, I was always encouraged um, to play counterpoint as well. Yeah, to, that's to right. echo a theme and yeah. to, to, to counter melodies. Yes, yeah. sort of but thing. people have so many different ideas about it. Some people might say, oh, I can't stand to play this. Or some people say, oh, please do more. Yeah. I've had everything. Um, let's talk about the other side of the musical conversation. What's it like playing with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, I joined it at a very interesting time because I, I met Iona Brown. I was playing um, with, with the Polish Chamber Orchestra, which used to tour around then in this country, and she liked what I did. And also, and she mentioned it to Sir Neville Mariner, and he said, well, that's interesting because, yes, I, I would like to have him. I know he's played. I'm just about to start to record all the Mozart operas. So incredible luck. Having done the Con Conor Davis, he wanted somebody who knew them. And so I had a second chance to do them. But he was playing both with the, the big. And, and we also had a big chorus in those days. Now we don't. Um, but we used to do Messiah and the creation, things like that, and tour with uh, playing all the wonderful Handel Concerto Grosses as well. So it was a chance to do both. Again, I had done some of that, but not quite, nothing like that. And have you performed with them before, the first time? Never. But I did get to meet Neville Mariner twice. Oh. Once was at the first gramophones I ever went to, 
where he won a lifetime achievement and I won, I don't know, I won some award. And he came to our table and chatted to my parents a little bit. And I didn't get a photo with him. I didn't get a photo oh. with Neville Mariner because I'm a schmuck. I'm sure there's a photo out there somewhere, but I'm so disappointed I didn't do this. So here we are. I'm, I'm an idiot because of course, he, did, he, he of course passed away a couple years later and I saw him right before he passed away because he did that performance at, is it St. James Piccadilly? Um, it was to, ra to raise money for the earthquake in Nepal where Enrico Alvarez got all these people together oh, yeah. to play Elgar and Gre I think Grieg Holberg Suite and stuff like oh, that. And they, oh, they raised yeah. money for the disaster in Nepal. Oh, yeah. And I went to that because a friend of mine had gone to school with his grandson. And, I th and we chatted for a few minutes and he said, oh, how are your parents and everything? And then, I, and then he passed away not long, oh. long after that. So of course, heck, I mean, to be able to play with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields is a, not only because of, of Sir Neville, but of course he's a big part of that. It's exciting. I mean, I can't believe this is actually happening. Well, he was delighted, I'll tell you, was until uh, almost the day before he died. He was in Padua, I think, uh, and he came straight home and, and didn't wake up the next morning. What a, Incredible. But what I toured Germany with him in, in to celebrate his 90th birthday, and we were doing Haydn Mass, that sort of thing. And uh, he was wonderful to work with. An incredible recording artist, apart from anything else, he knew just how to record. I could listen to something, oh, and alter it, put it right to straight. Amazing. A, a big ledge, yeah, as they absolutely. say. Yeah. Yes, yes. Man, what a guy. That does lead me on to my next question, actually. Uh, John, you have a wide-ranging discography, including recording Vivaldi's Four Seasons with Joshua Bell. Do you enjoy the recording process? Um, how does it compare to live performance? Well, um, I love recording. I've, I've recorded with singers, and I'm just used to recording always, almost since the 60s, early 70s, and recording with Sinfonietta, recording contemporary music. I doing the fire hop concerto with Simon Rattle, things like that. I just love recording. But there's an interesting record just come out. You know, the BBC Music Magazine has a disc which comes out every month with that. And they, they produce suddenly um, the Four Seasons with Iona Brown that was done uh, in my first year. I'd only been with them three months and we did a prom of the Four Seasons and that's just come out on a record. Extraordinary. I'll have to pick that up. But that, of course, that was live. No chance to go back up or anything. That was it. Mahan, what's recording like for you? I was scared to death of it at the beginning. Because I don't know, I don't know why. I guess no one told me. When I started recording, I thought you had to get it right in one take. I, I'm not kidding you. I'm totally not making this up. I didn't know that you could actually splice stuff and it was so easy. So I would prepare for a recording, you know, so where I knew it's so cold. And if I made a mistake, I would go out and sort of just scream. And then at some point, I think it was the second day of recording, the engineer said to me, you know, we can put parts of a take together, right? <laughs> and so I didn't know about all that stuff. Um, it was really tough. The first couple of recordings I did were tough. But of course, when I was at BBC New Generation Artists, this helped because it was kind of like a nice training program where you got to record all of this material. Of course, it was all for Radio 3. None of it was for commercial release, but it was kind of like someone was paying for you to learn how to record. And that was brilliant. And of course, I got to take all this repertoire there and do that. So now I find recording a much more pleasant process. And, and, and something that John said where Neville Mariner, Sir Neville Mariner was a 
was a great recording artist. He knew how to fix things in recording. I'm just starting to understand how to do that. How a recording is a very different product from a performance. And I never, underst I never understood that they were actually two completely different animals. So now I'm understanding how to really, I don't want to say, it's not that you're calculating it within an inch of its life or something, but for lack of a better word, you are, you are manipulating a recording very differently from something that's live. And you have to know just what clicks. So it's funny, when I go back to my first recordings, I think, mate, you really didn't know how to actually handle yourself in the studio. Um, but also what is different, it's a very different, my first recordings as such were for the BBC, in which you don't go back over things. Yeah. You, uh, there wasn't the time, they do less actual record, but a lot of things, there was something called music at night, music, and that you just recorded it. And it wasn't the same as doing a gamble record where you listen to every section and then go back and redo a bit. But I think you probably find exactly the same thing. There's always one take which is the best, which you use as the master. Yeah. And then you add. But it's a bit easier recording than it used to be because they had to put things together. They used to tie bits of tape together in a tape for the tape machine. Real to real. They yeah. actually did that. They glued it together, didn't oh, they? Oh, I remember, yes. That's <laughs> When you both go on tour, how does the music change? Normally you're doing a concert where you do one performance. It's very rare to do more than one. So is, is it a little bit indulgent? Does the music grow? Does it change? Well, um, touring, I mean, the point is you, you don't start from scratch again, but you always look back and uh, you know, we always have an artistic director or a pianist directing, my Peraz directed lots of things, and uh, Neville Mariner, you, there are certain things you always like to rehearse a bit, it's good for the group, you didn't just go through the, the routine, you think, well actually, that, that little bit we could do differently or something, everybody comes up with different ideas, and you always have a rehearsal before. So there will be some changes, but not mammoth. You, you rehearse it before you go on the tour. I think if it's fundamentally been well rehearsed and, the, and they're good colleagues and everyone knows what they're doing, it's different levels of good. The worst are when it's bad from the beginning and you have a lot of concerts on the tour because every concert is just a different type of bad. So, so I, I hope that answers your question. Well, I don't think anybody wants to do three hours rehearsal for the art for the evening concert. That's the other thing. Yeah. And people all never rehearse for everything. But it's just the artistic director or somebody you can say to them, "Well, look, I think we could do that bit again, yeah. and just rehearse certain sections of it." That or like, "Hey, last night, what the heck happened here? Yes, like, you yes, know, did I give a wrong cue here or something?" Or, yes, yes, that's exactly. But actually, um, have you ever found that? After the exciting first concert, the second concert goes down a bit, and then from the third, things start to go up. Well, I certainly, I remember that from, from being a Covent Garden, always they say, don't book for the second night or something, because yeah. there'll be this, the effort is slightly less. Yeah. 
I mean, he shouldn't be, but it, it is often the. But whether you would really know, I don't know. But there's, <laughs> but there's something about the the excitement of a first performance. Sometimes a, a great hall, you can go to a small place, and suddenly you're in Berlin, and that has a real sense of occasion to it, even if it's the second concert, because well, yeah. it's a capital city. There must be these moments again in different concert halls in different countries where something happens, things come together, and you have a, a bit of a moment within a piece. Would, would that be fair to to say? I suppose so, yes, but often the, these things which you are aware of, an audience isn't aware of. And it's often just a technical thing of maybe a bit softer here, a bit something, and they won't notice there's something wrong, not a collapse or something. I had a moment in Bach's triple concerto, the one with flute and oh, violin, yeah, yeah. where in the middle movement at bar five, I got lost, and I never found my way back in for the rest of the movement. And it sounded, it sounded like Elliot Carter, basically, for four minutes. Could we switch to good moments? <laughs> you know what, because, because musicians get together and trade the bad moments, Oh, of course we do. Yeah. Well, I know somebody, a friend of mine, um, Barry Tuckland, was a wonderful horn player, who was in London's Fronietta's first horn player. And he actually, he produced, um, I never heard it, but he produced it. He made a CD of all, all the mistakes that were on record in the oh. hall. <laughs> and he loved playing I don't think I would want to hear all my mistakes. Okay, see, I, think, I think ASNF is angry at us now, now that we've, yeah. now, we've, sought all, we've said all the disasters. Well, something I've learned, and it doesn't mean I always do it, but something I've learned is rehearsal is to learn other people's parts. You should come knowing your part, and you should spend rehearsal hearing what other people are playing and how you fit into it. And as long as that's how it works, then you're probably going to have a really good tour. Thanks to Mahan and John for the engaging introduction and conversation about the harpsichord. Do check out their recorded repertoire, and if you can, come and see them perform live. Mahan Esfahani appears with the Academy in the German towns of Flensburg and Kiel on the 28th and 29th of July 2019. John performs in three concerts beginning on the 23rd of July. For full tour dates and to book tickets, please visit asmf.org. I'm Ben Eshmade, and you've been listening to the Academy Podcast. That's about all we have time for, but as usual, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you have heard. So please do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag ASMFpodcast. Thank you for listening.